Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sailing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. As usual, here in the studio with me on a snowy day in Spokane, uh is my pretty bride, Ravinder, and she's looking chipper and full of ideas and argumentation today. So, Ravinder, please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show and share some of your special insight for the day. Me? Argumentative? I never argue with you. <laughs> it's all sweetness and light. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. As Eldon says, it's a snowy day here, but we're just coming into winter. So what do we expect? A couple of inches is no big deal. Um, if you want to learn more about the show, you can visit us online at provocativeenlightenment.com. And if you go there, you know, click on the archives button and you will find... Oh, I'm losing track. 13, 14, 15 years worth of archives in there. So there's plenty of stuff for you to learn and get caught up and to refresh yourself. Um, we also have our Facebook page. So you can simply search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio and you'll find us there. Any important information that the guest gives out um, during their interview, you know, any earls or anything like that, um, I will post them up there as well. So that's a quick way to go find that information. So, uh, yeah. Now, I heard Eric, our producer, wonderful producer, by the way, wonderful person, um, talk about the weather in the Puget Sound. And I'm looking through the windows uh, earlier today and thinking, wouldn't it be nice to be over in Seattle today instead of remotely connected? Huh? Yeah, you know, I certainly think that when I think of the temperatures, but I'm hearing from more and more people that, yeah, they have the warmer temperatures, but the skies are darker and it's rainy and Oh, come on, don't. Is... There you go. Raining on my parade again. Just quit. I'm saying that there's good things wherever you look. Yeah, they've got the warmer temperatures, but, you know, we frequently get the blue skies. It was freezing yesterday, but the sky was crystal clear blue. The sun was out. You know, that's always cheerful. So there's yeah. good to be found everywhere. All right. There you go. That's the good word for the day. There's good everywhere. In this week's spotlight, I want to discuss the idea of right action. For Buddha, right action was a series of restraint injunctions. From Moses, we have ten prohibitions or commandments. From the Sikhs, we were admonished against five evils. And so it goes across all religions. Right action defined as a negative admonishment. Now, there are political theories regarding right action and instruct us that according to the theory of right action, the happiness or pleasure of the greatest number of people in a society is considered as the greatest good. According to this philosophy, an action is morally right if its consequences lead to happiness of people 
and wrong if they lead to their unhappiness. Of course, one can easily imagine a situation where the action pleases a majority, but is criminal with regard to others, such as with genocide. Ethics teaches us that right action means taking the right action, and this involves considering the rules that define our duty and the rights of others. Ask yourself, what rules express my moral duty? And what rights must be protected for everyone to enjoy freedom and human dignity? With that in mind, allow me to share a story with you. Years ago, during a workshop in California, I shared a personal experience. I was discussing the idea of giving back, of helping others, of service, as I see it, to our fellow human beings. Now, the experience I shared was one of a motorcycle accident. Actually, it was more a scooter than a motorcycle, but whatever. When I came onto the scene, there were all sorts of people standing around gawking, some even talking to each other, but no one helping the man on the ground with a scooter. I promptly parked and went to the man. He was conscious, but not fully so, confused and unsure of what happened. It was at this point in my attempt to share the story that a member of the workshop spoke up, stating something like, Oh, you should never do that. You could be sued. Think about that for a moment. What would you do? Sure, there may be some sharp angler out there that takes advantage of any and all situations, but how about you? Can you just stand by? Are you going to let an injured person lay in the street alone without aid of any sort, not even a kind supporting word? Just wait and watch, perhaps hoping someone else will arrive and care for this fellow? Is this what our culture now promotes? It's none of my business is something I've often heard in situations where one person could have made a real difference, and yet no one did. Indeed, research has demonstrated the Genovese or bystander effect, which essentially asserts that it occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening in an emergency situation. That discouragement is just a matter of other people doing nothing. The greater the number of bystanders, the less likely it is indeed for any one of them to provide help to a person in distress. I ask all of you to think about the ramifications to a culture that encourages directly or indirectly this effect. Is that what we want? If not, what should each of us do to ensure that at least where we're concerned, it is never a hindsight regret with thoughts of, if only I had, or I wish I had it to do over. For me, right action requires that I lend aid to all who need it whenever possible. How about you? There you have it, Ravinder. What are your thoughts? You know, I think the issue is a whole lot more complicated than it appears on the surface. No, I absolutely believe in right action. You know, I think that um, is a fundamental part of who I try to be. Um, you know, especially when you look at something like an accident and stuff like that. But 
the whole question goes a whole lot further. You know, you've got... Um, there were, it was happening a lot more before. I'm not hearing about it so much now, but you hear instances of a person being hassled in a restaurant because of their political views. Well, the people hassling them are following right action. They're standing up for something. They're trying to do something. Um, but I don't think that's right. Um, so there, there's a balance in there. I, I think it, I think it can be complicated. The Genovese effect, you know, yeah, that is real. We tend to follow the herd. Um, we want to follow the norms. We think somebody else will do something because we're in a society like that, you know, majority of us, uh, the cops will come help out that they'll take charge. They'll do something. There'll be somebody else to take care of it. So, you know, there are there are places that, yeah, we can all do a whole lot better. There's other places we need to give it a whole lot more thought. I think whatever I, we do, we should do it consciously. So are you I saying think, that you know. think political bullying is, wrong. is right action? No. Oh. But the people doing the bullying think that it's right action. They believe that it's right action. Okay. I don't. So there you have the question mark as to what is right action. That's a question we shall put to our guests today, and that's the point of today's spotlight. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Letteretta Bruning, and we discussed her work in books, The Path of Civility. This great book, um, all of her work, I am very impressed with. She's become a good friend. I highly recommend that you do reach out uh, to Loretta's website. You do take a look at her books. Tammy wrote, I'm glad I'm not alone in thinking this PC stuff has gone too far. Robert wrote, thanks for the show. I really liked your guest. Refreshing point of view. Jackie wrote, Eldon and Ravinder, I think that both of you should be drawing teacher salaries since I learned so much from your books, your articles, and, of course, from your radio show. I find your information to be so new and cutting edge, I would never learn the things you teach from anywhere else. Teacher salary, princess? No comment, huh? Moving on, Simone wrote, (laughs) wow, hi, Eldon. Really enjoy your show. It's been great to hear your open and logical approach to all sides of thought and beliefs. You can tell the character and intelligence of a person by their willingness to listen and the courage to consider everyone. And Desiree wrote, I can say, since I started listening to your InterTalk program, my life has changed. I tell everyone I know to visit your website and try them out. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me opine, not opine. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, why we act turning bystanders into moral rebels with Professor Katherine Sanderson. I tell you up front, you want to go get this book, you want to read this book, Turning Bystanders into Rebels, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Rebels. Got that, everyone? So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Katherine A. Sanderson is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of Psychology at Amherst College. 
She received a bachelor's degree in psychology with specialization in health and development from Stanford University and received both master's and doctoral degrees in psychology from Princeton University. She has published over 25 journal articles, articles and book chapters in addition to four college textbooks, middle school and high school health textbooks, and trade books on parenting as well as how mindset influences happiness, health, and even how long we live. In 2012, she was named one of the country's top 300, print, 300 professors by Princeton Review. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome, Professor. Uh, to Provocative so Enlightenment, Professor Katherine Sanderson, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk. Well, it's my pleasure. I loved your book, Why We Act. There are lots of questions that I have. But first of all, we like to learn three things from our guests. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And how do we use it? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. So I wrote this book following an incident that happened to my oldest son. He started college and about two weeks into his very first year, he called me late one night and said, Mom, a student died in my dorm tonight. And the story is one that we're all too familiar with. The student had been drinking. He fell and hit his head. And lots of people saw what had happened. His friends watched over him for hours, trying to make sure he was okay. But what they didn't do for 19 hours was call 911. And by the time they finally did call, it was too late. So that incident was the prompt that led me to write this book. But the reality is, in lots of cases, not just freshman college students with an intoxicated friend, in many cases, groups of people fail to step up and do the right thing. And we see this time and time again on public transportation. We see it in corporate boardrooms. We see it with the Harvey Weinstein case. So my book really tries to examine what's the psychology behind inaction and tries to inspire people to have the tools they need to step up and do the right thing. I think it does a wonderful job at that, by the way. You heard today's spotlight. What have I got wrong, Professor? So your story is, of course, one that everyone has experienced. It's been fascinating to me as I've done interviews for this book over the last six months and everyone, like you described in the opening, everyone has a story. I saw this thing happen. I was in a hotel ballroom. I was at an airport. I was at a grocery store. I was at a restaurant. And so here's what that tells us. That tells us that this is a universal experience of seeing something, not being exactly sure what you saw, if it was a problem, and really not being sure what you should do. And our inaction in times like that, which is very normal, often stays with people. Do you remember how long ago did you see the scooter incident? Do you remember? Oh, sure. Uh, it would have been about 35 years ago. Well, no, there you no, go. I mean, no, 30 years ago. Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. so there you go. 30 years and you can still describe it vividly right now. Absolutely. And, and that's an example that I bet everyone listening 
has their own story. And that's been fascinating to me because as I talk about my book, everyone tells me something 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. These are things that stay with us. And so what I want is to give people tools and strategies so that they don't haunt us. Our inaction doesn't haunt us because we know what to do. All right. Now, in my particular instance, I did what I had to do. I did not stand by. And so I didn't get a chance to finish that story because the point was most people that I've talked to would not act in a situation like that for fear that they may do something wrong. And then some lawsuit, some something ends up coming back and, if you will, biting them in the rear end. <laughs> Did you find that? Absolutely. And and your action in that case, I assume there were other people around who didn't step up. Is that true? That's absolutely true. There was a crowd. No one stepped up. So, so that is what we see time and time again, is that many people, especially in crowds, many people don't step up. And a small number of people like you will actually step up. I call those people moral rebels. And there are not many of them. So there always are people. When I do a talk on my book in front of a big crowd, I'll often say to people, you know, raise your hand or, you know, or now I do it on Zoom as in raise your virtual hand. And it's about five to 10 percent of people say, well, I always step up or sometimes I get in trouble for stepping up or I always act. But most people, most people, as you saw in that crowd, most people don't do so. Yeah. All right. Before we get fully into your latest book, Why We Act, I want to ask you a couple of questions about another one of your recent books, The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health and Longevity, which is also a great book. Our guest last week addressed the role that some of our neurochemicals play in our happiness and well-being. So, for example, she informed us that, you know, negative self-defeating behavior can become addictive because of you know, rewards, neurochemical rewards. Dopamine is a case in point because we don't expect we'll succeed. We go ahead. Our expectation is we'll fail. We do fail. Whammo, we get the reward, the neurochemical reward, because we were right. Now, since longevity was not something we discussed at all last week, I'm going to turn to you about that. Please tell us how happiness can increase our longevity and by what criteria is that determined? So that is a really important question. I love that question. And I love that you are exposing listeners to this really important information about the power of positive thinking. What research now tells us is that people who are happier, and I can talk in depth about how that's measured, but generally it's described as people who have an overall optimistic expectation. So people who believe that good things will happen, people who can take bad events and frame them in a good way and shift their mindset in that way, those people tend to be happier, but they also tend to be healthier. They tend to be healthier in terms of faster recovery from surgery. They tend to be healthier in terms of less likely to develop signs of the common cold, even when a cold virus has been inserted into their nostril. And research suggests that they live on average 
about seven, seven and a half years longer. And that's even when researchers take into account things like how much they weigh, whether they smoke, if they have a family history of high blood pressure and so on. So there seems to be something unique and powerful about the ability to go through life with a positive mindset that really pays off. Thank you. Great answer. And it's a great book, everybody out there. The Positive Shift. That's the other book by um, our guest today. Professor Ellen Langer is famous for a study dealing with aging that suggests our mental mindset is a strong bearing on the aging process itself. Indeed, some have argued that her experience, experience, I don't know where my tongue is today, (laughs) experiments have shown that mental attitudes might reverse some of the ravages of, of old age. From your perspective of your own work, research and experiments, what is the mechanic behind this effect, or do do you think we know? So, first of all, I love Ellen Langer's work, and I actually have cited that a lot in my own book, The Positive Shift, so I know her work well, and it's extraordinarily impressive. And to answer your other question, though, I don't think we actually know fully what explains it. So one possibility is that if you have a positive mindset, you actually change your behavior. So if you believe you have the power to lose weight, maybe you exercise more. I have a son who has an extraordinary ability to find the silver lining in everything. And after he received a 50, literally a grade of a 50 in his first semester of a Spanish class, he was proud when he climbed to a 58 later in the semester. And again, he saw that as a great accomplishment going from 50 to 58, whereas I, as his mom, was less impressed. (laughs) But, But he, again, felt very proud about this sign of improvement and ultimately ended up getting an A minus at the end of this at the end of his freshman year. And again, that's because he felt like he was improving and that led him to keep working and paid off. But another factor that I think matters a lot is relationships, that happiness is in fact contagious and people like to spend time with people who are happy. So it may also be that people who have a positive outlook on life, maybe they build stronger, closer relationships with family members, with friends, with spouses, and maybe that actually adds years to their life. Yeah, okay. I, I have a friend who uh, we had a conversation about this one day, and uh, he's a psychologist. And what <clears throat> he moonlights sometimes as a disc jockey, and he was telling me a story about uh, a reunion that he was asked to do the gig for. And when he got there and he set up all the music and everything already, he discovered it was a 50th uh, high school uh, reunion. So all these old folks came in with caves and limbs and whatnot. And he had the music all cued, you know, not expecting a group like that. And he thought, well, I, there wasn't anything I could do, so I just went ahead with what I had. And he said, you wouldn't have believed, Eldon, the number of people that came in on caves or were just humped all over that left, just dancing and bopping and moving. And so there, there is a whole lot to be said about where we put our mindset and how how we face that. Let's turn to your newest book. One particular one I particularly enjoyed. 
in my opinion, is as uh, much that is really long past uh, do saying. So please tell us about the neural processes underlying general. I'm going to get my tongue correct, I promise. Gender differences in susceptibility to peer approval. And flesh this out for us, if you will, Professor. Well, that's a very important question. And as the mom of a daughter and two sons, it's something I think about a lot. And what we see is that there, there's generally a human tendency to want to conform, that we see that pretty regularly. And that's probably because evolutionarily, it's beneficial to fit in with your group and to be a part of a broader community. But we also see important differences both by age and also gender in this tendency. We've all probably heard about the tendency for adolescents and young adults, for example, to be especially mindful of fitting in with the crowd and especially concerned about not deviating from the group at all. It's why peer pressure is such a strong influence on high school students and, in fact, in college students. We also see interesting gender differences, however. One factor is that girls tend to be especially concerned about fitting in with other people, but they also are more empathetic. So girls are more likely to, for example, stand up to a student who's being bullied on a playground, and they show that higher level of empathy. So there are indeed fascinating differences as a function of both age and gender in our tendency to follow the crowd. All right, we have a hard break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about uh, peer approval and the role that it plays in why we act or we don't act. We're speaking with Professor Catherine Sanderson about her work and book, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. I cannot recommend it too highly. Go get this book. You can learn more about our guest and her books by visiting Sanderson Speaking. As one word, Sanderson, that's S-O-N, sandersonspeaking.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Catherine Sanderson about her work and book, 
Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. You can learn more about our guest and her books by visiting sandersonspeaking.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a hobby of mine and a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music professor is This Year's Love by David Gray. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Oh, I I had such a moment of pleasure just listening to that song that you played during the break. So thanks for that. And that song will always remind me of the first time that I heard it. I was on a 10-year anniversary trip with my husband. We had left our little kids at home with my mom. And we were on a vacation and off of the coast of St. Thomas on a boat going snorkeling and someone on the boat was playing it over the loudspeaker. It was the first time I'd heard it. And it was such a reminder to me of a very special moment. One of the things that I talk about in my book, The Positive Shift, is spending money on experiences and building close relationships. And so that song will always be a reminder to me of that wonderful trip with my husband. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. All right. I promised that after the break, I was going to ask you about the role um, peer approval plays in whether or not we act. Please flesh that one out for us, will you? Absolutely. So there is fascinating research now in social neuroscience that I delve into in why we act. And here's what the research shows. When you are ostracized or rejected by your group, it activates a particular part of the brain. And that is actually the exact same part of the brain that is activated when you experience physical pain, when you uh, sprain an ankle or get a paper cut or stub your toe. So what this tells us is that we really don't want to experience rejection because it feels at a neurological level like physical pain. And that's one of the reasons why we are so hardwired as people to try to fit in and conform to our group. So is there any difference? I mean, there are, uh, most of us belong to different groups. Maybe we're grouped by age. Maybe we're grouped by sex. Maybe we're grouped by religious affiliation, political affiliation, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and these groups don't always agree with one another. Uh, how, is that, uh, how does that work when these groups are in conflict with one another? So research has shown that even groups of strangers, so your example at the start, um, the scooter incident, those were, I assume, a a crowd of of, of people who were mostly strangers from one another, right? Probably. Just driving down the road, I'm sure, huh? Right, just driving down the road. So it can even be in a crowd of people that we don't know, we still worry about feeling embarrassed, doing or saying the wrong thing. So in part, it it happens in general, even in crowds of strangers. But 
your other very good question is how about our special group? And what we see is that when we feel a connection to someone in need who is part of our group, we're actually more likely to step up. One of the funny examples that I share in my book is that if you come across somebody who is injured and in need of help, such as the scooter incident in your story, you are more likely to help that person if they are wearing a t-shirt that is supporting the same sports team that you're a fan of. So this could be a stranger, but if you and the stranger both like the Boston Red Sox, you're actually more likely to step up and help that person, even if you might experience a cost for doing so, than if that person is wearing, let's say, a Yankees t-shirt. So that you actually see people being more able to step up and help someone in their group than someone not in their group. That seems to let us step up and overcome the general tendency to stay silent. Okay, now, you correct me if I put words in your mouth, but when I'm through reading your book, you are encouraging people to be moral rebels, to step up, to, uh, to take responsibility for situations where they can make a difference. Might be save a life, as the story you told. It, it, it could be anything, but where we need to. So that brings me full around to where Ravinder, in our opening piece, left things. What about political bullying? I'm a member of the same party. We're all wearing the same T-shirt. And that person with their wife and children is a member of a different party. I can see that by maybe I know them or they're wearing a different T-shirt. Um, where do you stand when it comes to being a moral rebel with respect to political bullying? So that's a such an important question, and it's actually a question that I've gotten more and more over the last couple of months. I, I often bet. get that question, yeah, right? I often get that question with respect to you know cancel culture and and that sort of widespread attacking of someone, often often someone online. So what I think about that is that bullying is bad, and that being a moral rebel doesn't mean stepping up and calling out all kinds of behavior in every possible way. What a moral rebel means is actually stepping up to, in fact, members of your own group. So if you are witnessing somebody engaging in bullying, it doesn't actually matter what that bullying is about. What matters is that people often stay silent. And sometimes there can be really vicious, mean bullying and in fact, people are staying silent instead of speaking up and saying, hey, hey, can we find some common ground? And so in that case, the bullying would be the problem. It wouldn't be that the bullying is, in fact, being a moral rebel. A moral rebel means standing up to your group. So if you're in a group of people that are engaging in bullying, you need to be somebody who steps up and says, hey, you know what? Let's try to tone this down. Let's try to find some common ground. You have some marvelous intercession ideas uh, spelled out in your book, and I'm not going to spoil them all. But one of them has to do with pink shirts. I'm sure you remember that. Uh, tell us that story, would you? It's about bullying and pink shirts. 
Uh, yes, that's that's such a lovely story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to describe this. So this is a true story that occurred in a small town in Canada when a boy on his very first day of high school and a freshman in high school wore a pink shirt to school. And he was taunted and teased by older students for having done so. And one can imagine that playing out in many high schools across the country. And yet two older boys, two seniors said, that's awful. And so what these two older boys did was they went and purchased a ton of pink shirts. And they then contacted their friends and classmates and said, tomorrow, come pick up one of these shirts. We're all going to wear one of these shirts. They all put on these shirts and that freshman boy walked into what they described as a sea of pink. And you can see in that example, those older boys are stepping up to bullying and they're showing that bullying, in fact, is not cool. And that story is a simple illustration of the power that we all have to step up and do the right thing, to support people who are bullied instead of joining in, and how role models can really make a difference. Okay, now I'm going to press you a little on this one, Professor, if you don't mind. Because recently, with the election, as you well know, uh, this country has been very divided, and there's been a lot of vitriol and, and hatred, you know, just thrown around. So in recent shows, uh, we had a guest who discussed the idea that um, a young man had called his mother and told her that if she didn't vote in a certain way, he was going to disown her. Um, there have been all sorts of those kinds of things occur between people within a family, people in the same group, all over the divisions of Give us an idea of an interdiction like the pink shirts that might work for this political division. So one of the things that I talk about really throughout many different chapters of my book is empathy, trying to see the world through someone else's eyes. And I think that's something we can all be mindful of. How would it be to see the world in somebody else's shoes. I have described an example that happened after I published the book, but I think it really speaks to the moment. So one of my friends has a daughter who was adopted from China as a baby. This girl is on her, this young woman now, this young woman is 21, 22 years old, recently graduated from college. She's on a bus in Boston this March. When a man on the bus stands up, points at her and says, you should go back to China. You and your people have brought us the coronavirus. You're killing Americans. You should go back to China. Mm. And the man is yelling at her. The bus is crowded. And no one stands up and says anything. And to me, that's an example of how surely there are people on that bus who must have said, boy, if that was my daughter on a bus, I wouldn't want people yelling at her. I wouldn't want her sitting alone. I want to go and support her. So when we talk about the major divides within our country in terms of politics, I think it's really important to try to say, can I see the world from somebody else's shoes? What leads people to feel this way? Can I try to imagine what it would be like to be in their place? There's a wonderful poem about the Holocaust that probably many of your listeners know that says something like, 
and first they came for the Jews and I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then they came for the communists and so on. And to me, that's that's the meaning that we all can do by putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. What would it be like to be in their shoes and to try to see the world from their eyes? And I think that can help us be a little bit kinder and gentler and we will all benefit. And, and that addresses everyone that is rational. <clears throat> but that that leaves, and I'll leave that unsaid. <laughs> you explain some research in your book dealing with confrontation. And this particular piece I'm thinking about, I, I think it was slanted more towards the difference between the genders again. But if I recall correctly, this was a study where three questions uh were used. I think question number one was, do you have a boyfriend? Uh, I found it interesting that the response style of those being asked could be said to be dependent upon how they perceived their own role at the moment they were asked. Please unpack this one for us and explain what it tells us about our willingness to accept or conform to what might or should be seen as unacceptable because we assume some role. Yes. First of all, I so appreciate the thoughtful and thorough read you did of my book, that it's always flattering as an author to have such wonderful and high-level questions. So first of all, I have to say that. Second of all, well, thank you. I think, well, I, it's, it's unusual and it's, and it's really appreciated. Um, I, will, I will say that what we see time and time again in that study and in others is that people often imagine if I were in this situation, surely I would. And then they have some response, right? Surely I would step up and say, that's not an acceptable question or, you know, that's, you know, offensive. And yet... What happens is that in many cases, people, in fact, stay silent because they worry if I were to call out this interviewer for an inappropriately personal question, you know, would I not get the job? And I think it's important to recognize that that's human, that we often have the expectation that we would do something. And then when we're in the moment, maybe we fall a little bit short but that if we all have some strategies and techniques that we can use, and they're not one size fits all, there might be certain strategies that work better in some situations and others that work better in different situations. But if we all have a few strategies that we can use in the moment to just call out some kind of problematic behavior, that can be useful if we're ever in that situation. You, back to these three questions that you asked, uh, when you ran this study, did it make any difference if you changed the role or did you play with that? And as opposed to say uh, they were applying for a job, place them in some other scenario where they were just being asked questions. Did you contrast it? In that particular study, they did not. But but what you do see is that when people are in a situation in which they have more to lose. So, for example, if it's a job that you really want or a job that's going to be very important, people are less likely to step up and call out problematic behavior. That certainly is true. Yeah, so where there's a jeopardy concern, they're more inclined to acquiesce. Do I get that correct? You absolutely do. Okay. Now, Professor, the big question is, is, is an ethical question. 
I want to do the right thing. I want to pursue life with some right action that is positive, that contributes, that helps others. But there's a lot of ethics out there. And, you know, with this whole world of cultural relativity today, um, what might be ethically okay in one culture is not necessarily the same thing in another culture. How do we balance that, or is that something you've even looked at? So it's important to recognize that in all cultures, we worry about deviating from the group. So in certain cultures, there may be norms about speaking up, and in other cultures, there may be norms about staying silent. But in all cultures, we have a tendency to want to fit in. I think the challenge becomes when there are times in which we want to do the right thing, but other people around us are not doing so. And what happens is that we can want to do the right thing, see other people around us not acting, and misperceive why they are not acting. And so understanding that this tendency to look around to other people, even when you know what the right thing to do is, everybody else around you might also be thinking that they'd like to step up. And that is a universal phenomenon that occurs in all cultures in which people stay silent because others around them are not doing anything. And and I describe that phenomenon as basically inaction, breeding, inaction. And that appears to be a universal truism. I, I spent years as a criminalist professor running lie detection exams and things of that nature. And once upon a time, I had a conversation with an individual who was um, involved in a scenario where they saw two teenagers attacking an older man in a park, and they were terrified. And understandably, I I get that. And they ran, and uh, then they felt guilt. And because they felt guilty, they didn't. They failed to report it. Uh, what's the difference, Professor, between being a moral rebel and being? I, I don't want to use the word coward, but being afraid of of acting out of fear of physical uh, danger. So that's a really important question, and and in fact. Moral rebels describe people stepping up in times in which they worry about the social consequences. So psychologists often distinguish between physical courage, such as, you know, jumping into a burning building or a frozen pond to rescue someone, things that require physical courage versus things that require moral courage. So if you're in a fraternity house and and somebody is engaging in sexual misconduct, you're not worried about your own physical safety. You're worried about the social consequences. Or if you're in a boardroom and somebody is engaging in unethical behavior, you're not worried about your physical safety. You're worried about your the social consequences of calling out that behavior. Now, there are times in which we, in fact, have to show both physical and moral courage. Probably most famously, of course, is the Holocaust, in which German people who hid Jews were, in fact, 
engaging in an act of moral courage, but also one that put their lives at risk. If they were to be found doing so, they in fact were typically sent to concentration camps. So in some cases, we need to show both physical and moral courage, but in more often, we are required to show moral courage and we have the opportunity to do so. I'm not sure that, and I'll just throw this out here and you go ahead and beat me up, but I'm not sure that moral courage and physical courage aren't but really the same thing because courage and fear should not be conflated. They are not the same thing. Most courageous people I've ever known uh, admit that, you know, fear was something that, of course, they were fearful. Uh, do you see that differently? Well, I do. And, and of course, you're exactly right at what's happening at a neurological level, right? In the brain, physical safety and social fear are the same. I think the distinction is that there are times in which people show great physical courage and they don't have to worry about the social consequences. So if you're a hero and you dive into the burning car and rescue the baby, you're worried about your physical safety in doing so, but you're not worried, oh, are people not going to like you? If you call out an offensive, you know, racist slur or sexual misconduct, you're not worried about you're going to die potentially, but you're worried that maybe people are going to ridicule me or ostracize me in some way. So they're definitely linked. And the fear, of course, is exactly the same. But there's a difference a, a bit between fear of physical safety and survival, which sometimes rightly keeps people silent versus the social consequences of calling out bad behavior. I see how you differentiate that. Thank you. Listen, we have about 30 seconds, maybe 40 if I stretch it. I want you to tell our audience how they can learn more about you, get your books, read your blog, et cetera, and so forth, please. Well, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. As you can tell, it's something very meaningful to me. And as you have said, I have a website, sandersonspeaking.com, and people can follow me on Instagram at sandersonspeaking or on Twitter at sandersonspeaks. So thank you so much for the thoughtful questions and opportunity to talk today. It's indeed been our pleasure, and I want to thank you for sharing your work and experiences with us, Professor Sanderson, and we wish you the best in your endeavors to come, and do keep up this moral rebel stuff, will you please? All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place, and do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.